This is the Kurt Vonnegut Museum and Library on WQRT 99.1 FM, Indianapolis. In 1922, Kurt Vonnegut was welcomed to Earth. Over his 84 years, he became a beloved writer known for his unflinching look at the world and an outspoken voice for free speech and common decency. Known for his unique sardonic style, Vonnegut published 14 novels, three collections of short stories, five plays, and five works of nonfiction. In 2022, the Kurt Vonnegut Museum and Library are celebrating Vonnegut's 100th birthday. Join me, Chris Lefebvre, and my co-host, Sam Bannon, as we explore the ways Vonnegut's legacy has shaped the lives of others and continues to make souls grow. From the Kurt Vonnegut Museum and Library, this is the Vonnecast. The following episode contains mentions of suicide. Listener discretion is advised. If you or a loved one is in crisis, help is always available. Please reach out to nami.org forward slash help, call 800-950-NAMI, or text NAMI to 741741. 2022 is the year of Vonnegut at 100, a century of stories. The Kerr Vonnegut Museum and Library has a full year of programs and events celebrating the life, work, and legacy of Kerr Vonnegut. In July, we are hosting our 11th annual Teaching Vonnegut Workshop Series. This year, workshops will be 100% virtual, and classes are now open for registration at kvml.org. Led by experts in their field and Vonnegut scholars, Workshops aim to enhance both public educator knowledge on a variety of topics related to the works, interests, and philosophy of Kurt Vonnegut. Stay tuned to kvml.org and our socials for upcoming announcements about Band Books Week, Vonnegut Fest, and the rest of our 22 events and programs. Hello and welcome to the Vonicast. I'm your host, Sam Bannon. I'm joined by my co-host, the ever-charming Chris Lefebvre. Today, we are thrilled to have Rhett Miller as our special guest. Rhett Miller is most known for being the frontman of the old 97s with songs such as Champagne, Illinois and Time Bomb. Rhett also performs as a solo musician and is a published writer of both fiction and nonfiction. Rhett has been playing music since 1986 and has now been Vonicasting with us since 2022. Rhett, thank you for joining us here today on the Vonicast. How are you doing? I'm fantastic, and I am so honored that you asked me to be a part of this. I'm, I'm excited about the 100th anniversary of the birth of the great Kurt Vonnegut Jr. Awesome. Yeah, well, we are definitely excited to have you here. I was talking to Chris before we went on. I said, yeah, well, the Cubs yesterday lost in a very irritating way, so I had to drown my sorrows and listening to hours and hours and hours of the old 97 in preparation for today. So suffice to say, we're happy to have you on as well. That's sweet. And it's, it's it's Chicago has been such a great city over the years. I know y'all are in Indy, um, which I also love. And Indy has a, a rich cultural history. Um, but yeah, Chicago was the first city that 
adopted the old 97s and gave us a real opportunity. And it wasn't until Chicago fell in love with my band that the people in Dallas were like, oh, yeah, we've loved you guys for years, for real. And <laughs> so, yeah, I'm a big Chicago fan and Cubs fan for what it's worth. Oh, very nice. Well, the whole thing's going to go running off the rails now. <laughs> what was the, uh, but Red, what was the first time you encountered the work of Kurt Vonnegut? So I was trying to remember this. I, I was in eighth grade and my first book was Breakfast. And I am, I even called up, I, I, my eighth grade English teacher was a really important figure in my life, Jay Jennings. And he went on to become a member of the fourth estate in addition to being uh, a member of academia. He was teaching in Terrytown at a college and he was writing for a number of magazines. I think New York magazine was the one that he was writing for when he wound up on an itinerary of mine. Um, you know, I was doing a slate of interviews in 2000 and I looked on the thing and I was like, Jay Jennings, this couldn't be my eighth grade English teacher, could it? And <laughs> sure enough, when, when he arrived, it was this fabulous reconnection. I got to thank him for, you know, being such an inspirational part of my life. Anyway, so we've stayed friends over the years and I, he's now down in Little Rock, Arkansas, still writing. Um, he's basically in charge of the Charles Portis estate and library now and and so he's very involved in the world of literature and he's a brilliant guy but i called up jay and i said were you the one in eighth grade that turned me on to vonnegut and he apologetically said it probably <laughs> wasn't him because he prefers more realistic fiction like like charles portis and um and that he probably wouldn't have thought especially in a professional capacity at this all boys private school that i went to that it would have been appropriate to recommend breakfast of champions to an eighth grader and um that's probably fair yeah yeah but i mean in in my in my defense i somehow found uh catcher in the rye in fourth grade i mean like i was um i was i was a little bit of um a prodigy when it comes to finding inappropriate literature and um and, and i fell in love with breakfast of champions for the reason that and i'm this is i know you guys have discussed this um with gary and um and also lewis on the earlier podcasts i i just there's something about him that appeals to youth because i think he spends so much time writing to um a reader that is um the narrator is assuming is like an alien, right? Well, on mm -hmm. earth, we have these things called whatever. And so he's like describing the earth as if it's to an alien creature. And when you're a 14 year old kid, or I think 13, I was 13 at the time, you feel like an alien creature and you feel like you're looking at this world going, none of this adds up. Am I the only one that is noticing that this is all insane, like literally insane. And, um, and so I was really moved by that. And I spent the next two years devouring everything that he wrote and then waiting as each subsequent work throughout the 80s and then the 90s would come out. And um, I did not reread those for a long time. And then I've gone back over the years now and reread most, most of them. And, and I was really wondering, and I'm giving you the long answer, I was really wondering if they would hold up. And I've found that the experience of reading them now is very different, but in some ways it's more enriching because like when he talks in uh, Breakfast of Champions about being a 50 year old man, you know, um, I'm 51. And so, and I've spent my life creating art. And so I've, I have this 
this connection to you know the narrator, which I love that he inserts himself into that and some other books as well, you know, a la Vonnegut or Miguel de Unamuno or one of the surrealists. Um, you know, I I had this experience of really relating to you know his viewpoint and his um just how how weird it feels to be on the other side of one's youth and then when i was young and i was 13 reading breakfast for the first time it just it didn't click with me like that obviously red i i absolutely adore that you said that that actually happened to me in a very 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 similar circumstance i read breakfast of champions for the first time in college um, I had to give a talk at a at a book club at a bookstore in my mid 30s, and I realized I hadn't read the book since I was 22 years old. And I was like, "Oh dear God, this could go really badly." <laughs> um, I was staying with a college friend who uh, refused the idea that I should just go to his house and read a book in quiet. He was like, "No, I've got some John Coltrane and Pink Floyd vinyl and some beer where you can read it in the morning." Morning, I don't feel so good, and I'm like, "Well, I guess I guess I get to read a 300 page book at a million miles an hour." Um, <laughs> That was actually an amazing life experience because that's a really relatable Vonnegut book. Like you, yeah. you feel very seen in moments in that book. Whereas I just think it's really funny because the group discussion was amazing. And it was so personal to everyone who had read the book because we had a talk there a year later about Slaughterhouse-Five. And it was harder because it was a lot of the same people, but not a lot of people have lived through the bombing of Dresden. So it, was, yeah. it wasn't quite as easy as being like, I'm 50 years old. I'm trying to empty my brain of all the junk in it, which is like, you know, that that's something that a lot of people can feel seen in. That's so um, funny. So, that's so funny you had that experience because there's such a, a, a funny plot point that's such a like a deus ex machina moment where Vonnegut says, Normally, Dwayne Hoover wouldn't have been able to read this book in one sitting, but I gave him a speed reading course in his <laughs> bio, so he was able to sit there and read the Kilgore Trout novel like sitting in the bar, and that was basically you preparing for the Breakfast of Champions discussion. Yeah, it, it turns out speeding re speed reading while having a panic attack and hungover will also uh, will also give you some superpowers. Uh, but that makes the obvious book. Uh, that makes the obvious next question. Um, what was the best or most interesting reread that you've had so far? And you can expand this to other books if you want to as well. Sure. Um, it's it it my favorites. Uh, my favorites did and didn't change a little bit. Like I remember, I've got my old copy of Player Piano that's just so yellowed and. And I just handed this down to my son recently, but I found I didn't have a lot of the other ones when I was trying to get, he had read Breakfast of Champions. He's eight, 18 now and was, of course, you know, loved it so much. So I ordered a few more and, and I've, and I've have, have reread over the years a few more. So, and, and of course, this is also kind of in keeping with the, um, which book was it Jailbird or Slapstick where he graded all his novels in the introduction? It's, uh, it's, Palm, it's Palm Sunday, but Jailbird Sunday. was the last book that he wrote before Palm Sunday. Yeah. And he gave it an F or, or a D. He gave it a D. <laughs> he gave it a D. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but it was funny, too, because, you know, like to, to see um, an artist uh, look back on their work, because we do this in my band all the time. We'll go, oh, well, that, you know, that record, that record's not good. You know, but this record, <laughs> nobody knows that this record's good. They didn't buy it, but it's it, this is our best one or whatever. Um, okay, so my experience going back through was that Player Piano, 1952, 30-year-old man, first novel, was great. It was so great. I really, the prescience in that novel, the um, 
like later on in my life, and I'm not sure I would, I, I, I probably wouldn't still point to it as my favorite novel, but what wound up being a favorite novel later by a different writer was, um, was, uh, David Foster Wallace's Infinite Jest, and which now I know a lot of people have a problem with that novel and with him and the way it's been co-opted by bro culture or whatever. But my personal experience with it was that I really felt seen and I really felt like I connected on a, a real and personal level with a lot of these characters. And in a similar way, they both were um, these mildly science fiction books. I mean, maybe player panels a little bit more so, but these kind of mildly science fiction books that predicted things about our future that seemed insane at the time and wound up being, you know, less than the insanity that we would see in real life later. You know, for David Foster Wallace, he was predicting the like the FaceTime video phone and how much people would and Zoom calls, how much people would hate having to look at their own face constantly and what a drag it would be to not be able to do chores while on the phone or whatever um in addition to a lot of other stuff but so for for player piano the it was so sweet seeing the genesis of the vonnegut worldview in that book and the way that he talks about and i think it keeps coming down to this sort of dehumanization right like we are being rendered redundant by the machines that we we create and in Player Piano, it's such a beautiful job of of um, laying that all out. And, it, and it's obviously a first novel because he does a lot of stuff that doesn't quite work. He uses a lot of adverbs where, I mean, he kind of always used a lot of adverbs. And I think it was almost this self-conscious, like, I'm not going to write like you're supposed to write in oh, the Iowa Writers Workshop. I'm just going to, you know, <laughs> he looked down depressedly or whatever. It's stuff where you normally your editor would cross that out. But, you know, Vonnegut's like, eh, no, he it was it was depressedly the way he did it. And um, <laughs> so I think there's things about player piano that, that don't maybe hold up as far as like when he really finds his voice and when he really finds the way that he likes to tell stories and and even to the even to the point that he would make later when he was a teacher um, and he would talk about um, how important it is that your protagonist be lovable or at least likable. I'm not sure player piano totally has that going on. It kind of comes and goes. And then I really thought Sirens of Titan and I know Gary Goldman and I would disagree on this. I really thought that was my favorite Vonnegut book of all. And then going back and rereading that, I was I don't know. I just, it didn't connect with me as much as it had before. It's still great. Um, the ones that I came back to thinking were my really, my favorites were Cat's Cradle, which to me, Cat's Cradle is so terrifying and beautiful. And and it's, you know, I really cared about all of the people in it. And then there's people that you think you'll hate. And it, he does all the things that I love about Vonnegut so much. But um, the one that I feel like is, criminally overlooked in his catalog is a book that I tried to do a stage adaptation of at my all boys school in ninth grade, um, a book called Dead Eye Dick. And um, Dead Eye Dick is, it's almost a companion piece to Breakfast of Champions. You know, it also takes place in Midland City. It features many of the same characters. Um, like so many of his novels, it deals with complicated father-son relationships um, and obviously mother issues um it's just such a beautiful book to me I, I and i think i think it spoke to me personally in 
because I think, uh, like I said, the father son thing throughout his work is really a dry, uh, like a an under the surface thing that drives a lot of the stories. And I and I really I love it, and I and it makes me wonder, you know, on a personal level, what it was like for him, what his own relationship with his dad was like. It sounds like it was somewhat fraught, you know, and obviously his history with his mom and her mental illness and her suicide. Um, I had some echoes of that in my own life and some echoes of the complicated father-son relationship in my own life. And so for whatever reason, Dead Eye Dick held up even better than any of the rest of them. I, I had thought I would go back to Dead Eye Dick and think, oh, no, this this is from uh, the... Because there was a time where I felt like he was doing Kurt Vonnegut, or maybe he even thought he was doing Kurt Vonnegut, like some of those maybe 80s books. But I still go back and I still think they're so great. I know he grades them more harshly. But um, yeah, so Dead Eye Dick was the one that really came back to me. And But Cat's Cradle is probably still my favorite. So if you had to pick one book, whether of, of those you just named or the other Vonnegut books, do you think that there's one Vonnegut novel you think is most underappreciated or underrated? Um, Probably Dead Eye Dick, just because I never hear it mentioned. You know, I, I there, and... When like my wife was asking me, what I, I've never read Vonnegut. What Vonnegut should I read? And that's so hard to answer because really to me the answer is, well, you kind of just need to start at the beginning and read them, you know, because <laughs> it's like a conversation he's having with the human race, you know. And and I, I, I just I think he is more than a novelist. I think he is, you know, he's to me. I don't know. I. I this sounds heavy handed, perhaps, but I just I feel like he's more like Gandhi or Jesus or somebody where he was kind of put on this earth. And it was probably difficult for him a lot of the time to do this thing that he was kind of clearly born to do, where he sort of helped the human race or at least those of us that read him to make peace with the insanity of the world in which we were living. And I feel like the person upon whose shoulders that job falls is is gonna it's gonna be hard for them but if you're willing to do it you know you can be one of the most important people in history and i feel like maybe history doesn't recognize him as much as it should as being as important as he is yeah i know he, he apparently according to the vonnegut kids hated being referred to as a religion but i think being <laughs> calling him a philosophy i think is a lot a lot better because i uh, gary goldman said he's a Vonnegutian more than he is a Jew, <laughs> which yeah. I thought was funny. Um, and I, I'm not Jewish, but I would say I'm definitely more Vonnegutian than Jew or Christian or Muslim or, or any any of the religions. Um, kind of kind of like how you were talking, right, with the impact he had on, on your life and everything that you had had gone through with your with your youth and everything. Um, didn't have a, a very similar experience with all of that, but he definitely did speak to me in a way that kind of o- opened the doors, if you will, um, with Kurt Vonnegut. So. Uh, Rhett is uh, we got one more silly question here speaking of religion in your song Champaign Illinois you say you will not go to heaven you'll go to Champaign Illinois Uh, Vonnegut said his favorite joke was people saying he would go to heaven so do you think Kurt Vonnegut is currently in Champaign Illinois well it's funny that you ask that because that is the segue to my own personal Vonnegut story where (laughs) where when I was was it 86 87 when he released Galapagos and I went to a Barnes and Noble I think in North Dallas and waited in line and I heard him read which is incredible 
you know, because he's, you know, to me, especially as a teenager, he was so much larger than life. And he was, you know, and to all of probably to all of us that grew up loving him, you know, just his books were one thing, but he was had, as a he just didn't seem like he would ever be in the same room as you being a human being. Right. He just seemed like this giant e epic figure. So there he was reading and um, and he was obviously just so charming and funny and down to earth. And he had dandruff all over the shoulders of his tweed jacket and and um you know he did his reading and then he stepped out for a quick quick smoke behind the office and then he came back out and sat at the table and i waited in line for like an hour and 20 minutes and when i finally got up to the front of the line um i had been wondering if i would have the courage to say this to him but as as he was signing his autograph and underneath that he would do the uh 12 pointed asterisk was 12 16 point or whatever his astro the symbol yeah. <laughs> yes. um, yeah so as he was drawing that underneath his autograph i said did you know that that's also the assyrian cuneiform symbol for god because i had learned that in some you know uh, world history class not long before and, and put them together that they that they were the same symbol his his and the symbol for god from this <laughs> ancient culture and um and he looked up at me with his eyes twinkling, of course. And he goes, oh, I guess that means I'm probably going to go to hell. <laughs> and and like, like the whole idea that he and I were having this witty banter went out the window and my stomach dropped and I felt horrible all of a sudden. And I was like, no, no, of course you're not going to hell. <laughs> you know, and I was like stammering and muttering and the, the security guy just kind of led me by the elbow away. <laughs> but he was smiling and he was, he was clearly letting me off the hook. He wasn't giving me a hard time for it. You know, it was making him laugh. So I would probably say that um, if there is a heaven, certainly he is there, but I would agree with my understanding of his take on it, which is that, you know, his, his peephole just closed and, you know, he's still here because time is always what it is, you know, like here we are talking about it. My 18 year old son is reading his book. My 18 year old son is going to give breakfast of champions to his kid. And it's, you know, so he's still here and he's still, uh, you know, underneath Dresden and he's still in the Barnes and Noble in North Dallas. No kidding. No kidding. Uh, last question in this round uh, was this, uh, there's a Wikipedia line, which may or may not be true. Um, was the song Champaign, Illinois, inspired by Bob Dylan's Desolation Row? And do you consider Dylan to be awesome or super awesome? So that was the other question I wanted to ask you guys. Okay. Uh, <laughs> back in the earliest days of the old 97s, they let me drive the van, which is insane. Like, I'm a, I'm a really good driver. <laughs> but back then, I drank a lot. I smoked weed. I, um, you know, th this would be late after a show, we would drive through the night and everybody would somehow sleep while I chain smoked cigarettes like my hero, Kurt Vonnegut. And, um, and I would write songs to keep myself awake. And as it was a sort of pre-texting days, uh, I would just lodge a spiral notebook in the steering wheel. And with one hand on the wheel, I would, I would write, but I couldn't clearly play guitar though. I did think about it, like to hang the neck out the window, the open window and, but <laughs> That would have been a bridge too far. So I just put the notebook on the steering wheel 
And so I would have to rewrite lyrics to songs that I loved. And in, in the case of that, I took Desolation Row off Highway 61 Revisited, one of maybe my top five all-time albums. And re and as we all know, Bob Dylan, great, but lyrics, maybe not so much. Just kidding. And um, so I, <laughs> I, I rewrote the, the lyrics to Desolation Row. I did, I did um, fix it a little by taking it from 10 verses down to three verses, which I felt like was way more manageable. And um, so we had this song that was that we really loved, but we could never record because Dylan famously has a phalanx of lawyers that are, you know, the scent of blood, you know, all the time. And so finally we got a manager maybe 10, 12 years after I'd written that song who was friends with Bob Dylan's manager. And he got the song to Dylan's manager and Dylan's manager got it to Dylan. And I got this crazy email saying, Hey, Bob Dylan likes your song and he wants <laughs> to let you, he wants to have it be a co-write so that you guys would together own the publishing on it. And so now when you look at our album or my Wikipedia or whatever, it says, uh, you know, Champagne, Illinois, written by Red Miller and Bob Dylan. I've never <laughs> been in the room with Bob Dylan. I'm friends with his son, Jacob, but I've never been in the room with the man himself. And I'm not sure that I want to. I never met David Bowie either, and he was another hero. But that was the question I wanted to ask you guys, because I figure you know the answers to everything. Um, yes, naturally. Yes. Heard, naturally, yeah, we do. I'm yeah. going to go home and tell my entire family I know everything. <laughs> um, Kurt Vonnegut Jr. Uh, talks about music some, and you always get the famous quote that I've had on my wall. You know, music is the existence of the music is the proof of the existence of God. Um, did what music did he like? Like, for instance, did he like Bob Dylan? Did he like Johnny Cash? Was did he keep up on contemporary music? Was it always like, you know, opera or something that I can't even imagine? No, no, it wasn't opera. He was uh, he was very into jazz. He was a jazz fanatic. He said uh, the best thing that Satan put in the apple uh, next to sex was jazz. It's safe sex of the highest order. Um, although on the last podcast, uh, Jared and Joshua Thompson said, you know, if you've been on the bandstand, it's not always super safe <laughs> feeling, um, yeah. especially improvisation wise. Uh, we have Vonnegut on record as being a Brubeck fan, a uh, big fan of um, of Benny Goodman, uh, Miles Davis, the modern jazz quartet. Uh, he had some issues with Bob Dylan's poetry or, uh, or, 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 or writing, I think just because of how abstract it could be. This is a common critique i mean i i, I knew I, I ran with a lot of musicians myself and i and i knew people who were like you know there's especially like if your favorite dylan tune like me is visions of johanna and you hear him saying jewels and binoculars hanging from the heads of the mule that to me is the most beautiful thing in the history of the world but if you play that for someone like my mom you're gonna be like what in the ever-loving hell is that <laughs> please save me and you know vonnegut picked his words and sentences so carefully and so clearly uh, that I, I I think he just approached art in general from a very different uh, perspective than Dylan did. He did like the Beatles. He was pretty into the Beatles, especially in the sense that um, uh, he said that, you know, the purpose of the artist is to make someone feel really glad they were alive to experience said art. Yeah. And, and, he, and, and when asked who did that, he said the Beatles. Um, so, yeah, he had some pretty legit musical taste i think as uh as things went further and further into the world i'm not sure how into the grateful dead and fish he really was but he had a connection to them <laughs> oh that's pretty funny 
Well, we we do have a, a teaching Vonnegut course called Bach, Beethoven, and the Beatles, Vonnegut and his musical choices to shamelessly plug our teaching Vonnegut thing. So <laughs> nice. if you're interested in that, go to kvml.org. Well, Red, we mentioned uh, kind of briefly in the open, uh, in addition to your music, you also um, do some writing. Uh, you just recently wrote a book called No More Poems, a book and verse that just gets worse. Um, Vonnegut once received a letter from his friend and fellow Indianapolis author Dan Wakefield um, saying, quote, I see you've become a poet. I forgive you. Um, <laughs> what is the worst poem in the book that you wrote? Well, there was a poem. I've got it's funny. I've got another book coming out in August uh, that's not po poems. It is one long rhyming children's story called The Baby Changing Station. About, and it's actually now that I think about it, it's kind of a Vonnegut or a Kilgore Trout conceit where this older brother takes his baby brother into a, a bathroom to change his diaper and the baby changing station has a screen that suddenly comes to life and offers him the opportunity to without anyone's ever having remembered the brother existed trade the brother in for these three cool items you choose <laughs> and so then he has to you know deal with the temptation of getting rid of this meddlesome younger baby brother and you know or does he, or does he keep the brother and give up these three cool items? Um, that is definitely a Kilgore Trout story. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> I like that. Um, there is one poem in that book that was um, that made for a lot of problems with me. In 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 my No More Poems Kids book, I got picked up right off the bat by Costco. Uh, they were going to sell my book in their stores, which is. A coup of the highest order. My publishers could not believe. And my illustrator on that book in The Baby Changing Station is a Caldecott Award winner, Dan Santat, who's, you know, like one of the very top illustrators of children's books in the world. And um, Dan was like, I've never gotten anything in Costco. This is incredible. Well, the week the book came out, um, a grandmother, my understanding was, a grandmother went in and bought my book to read the poems to her grandkids. Um, she lived in Dayton, Ohio, Flint, Michigan, somewhere stodgedly Midwestern, Rust Belty, and and um, she came across this poem in in my book that um, I won't read you the whole poem, but I'll give you the gist of it. It was called um, "Brotherly Love," and the the concept is there's a father begging once again it's sibling rivalry father begging an older sister not to murder her younger brother and he's and it's it, it was really inspired um by tom lair uh the irish lament where this girl kills off her family members and in the song he describes the different ways she kills each of her family members and so in this poem he's saying you know please don't uh please don't push your brother out the window little miss I know he has it coming. I am quite aware of this. But if you push your brother out the window, he'll go splat. And once he does, <laughs> there isn't any coming back from that. And, you know, and it goes on. Each stance is mm -hmm. a different way she might murder her brother. You know, please, please don't drown your brother in the bathtub, sweetie pea. He can be a twerp <laughs> sometimes. I know, believe you me. But if you dunk him three times and he only comes up two, the cops will be all over us. There's nothing I can do. And so... <laughs> That's first good. of all, first of all, he's telling her the message is don't murder him. Second of all, <laughs> it's clearly satirical, right? Even no kid upon hearing that would think, oh, this sounds great. I could, you mean if I just hold their head underwater, they'll die? This is great. So anyway, she started a campaign first on Facebook and, and then it went viral on those 
right wing uh, media. There's a media conglomerate that owns a bunch of like 11 o'clock news programs and they share stories. And so there was one day where in Indianapolis, among like 10 to 12 other uh, Midwestern Rust Belt markets, there was a story that ran on all these nightly news is saying children's poet monster. You know, and they and they have her on screen going, I couldn't believe it when I read this. Why would little brown readers publish such a book? Why would Costco carry it? And the next day and the next day I got a call from my editor and she said, well, Costco pulled the book. And they said it's not because of the furor on Facebook and the nightly news. I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm sure it wasn't because of the furor. It was a kind of a disaster. And I, I wasn't allowed at the insistence of my publishers to respond in any way. And it made for a very weird, and I imagine this is something Vonnegut dealt with uh, over the years. Um, I was going to say, you should come visit us for Band Book Week. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it, it made for a very weird feeling of like that I can be judged and, um, you know, I can have a mob come for me and I really can't respond. You know, and and once you do respond, all it does is make more problems. So, yeah, you can give in to that human response to argue with them uh, or you can just let them peter out and then move on. And and I, I had to do that, but it it felt horrible, honestly. Well, the entire to, first yeah. floor of the museum is dedicated to Vonnegut, freedom of expression, comedy to see and to highlight awareness for people banning books in the United States. We have a whole library of banned books, and so I think we might have to add your book into our banned books library. Yeah, I was going to say, please please send us a copy. <laughs> I will. I was also banned from a bunch of libraries in the wake of that. and But I did. I took consolation in the idea, in the fact that obviously Vonnegut, uh, and then even like um, uh, who's um, where Shel Silverstein, you know, like even Shel Silverstein had books that were banned. And and he was, you know, a big inspiration for my kids' poems. So that's it's. I'm I'm amongst an elite group, I guess. Well, the story involving Silverstein is absolutely hysterical when you think about him being a member of Doctor Hook and the Medicine Show, and all the uh, all the sex and drugs, like really, really flagrant. Like yeah. I, I, I'm not I'm not going to quote it, but if you listen to the song <laughs> "Freaking at the Freakers Ball," you'll never be the same again. Uh, you know, so it's really funny that he was. Uh, I think it was a Wisconsin elementary school that read "Lights in the Attic," and saw that little poem where it says, "If you have to dry the dishes, such an awful boring chore. Maybe if you drop one on the floor, they won't make you dry the dishes anymore." I just thought, man, someone thought that was inappropriate for children. They thought that was subversive and dangerous. And I'm just like, I'm, I'm, I'm almost 40 years old, and that's pretty much my cleanliness strategy is to throw everything in the garbage. So it's, I just, yeah, that was, that blew my mind, man. Uh, Red, I want to talk to you a little bit about your musical influences. Uh, this actually came from a friend of mine on Facebook, Erin O'Rear. She said something along the lines of you being a big David Bowie fan. Yeah. And uh, and I'd heard through the grapevine that you're a big Jason Isbell fan. So I wanted to give you a moment to comment on those two artists in particular and your musical influences in general. Um, well, Isbell, I, I really admire him. And, and the way he writes songs is just he makes it look effortless, like all great art should look as if the making of it is effortless. And and he certainly does that. Um, Bowie, I grew up. And it was funny because it was really the same time frame. It was 13, 14 when I discovered Bowie. And it, and like my falling in love with the work of Kurt Vonnegut Jr., it was a lot of feeling 
like I didn't belong, you know, feeling like a, um, an outsider, feeling like I'd landed on some planet and um, somebody must have gotten their wires crossed because, boy, why am I here? This is not the right place for me. I clearly don't fit in. And Bowie, you know, that was his that was his whole career was constantly become going from one alien persona to another. And, and so it was right around that same time. And um, yeah. And I, I, it was also a time when, um, you know, I, I guess I won't, I won't get into my family history much, but it was, you know, it was, it was complicated fraught. It, it was the early eighties and everybody was sort of dealing with their own stuff. Um, I felt very much like an outsider. I was I was still on the football team, but I was kind of pretty regularly getting beat up by the middle linebackers. And, you know, they would uh, whisper, you know, gay slurs in my ear to tell me to quit the team. And I'm like, you're the one that's laying on top of me right now, bro. But, um, <laughs> you know, it was it was it was a tough time. And it sort of culminated in um, my 14th year when I had a suicide attempt that was pretty hardcore you know it could easily have worked and and um that was another thing rereading over the years the vonnegut that i read because as much as i'd always thought of him as a humorist and a humanist and someone who was really funny and sweet and essentially positive which i still do think all those things about him but you know his experience in dresden his experience watching his own mom um, and her struggles and, and where, where that eventually led to her suicide. I, I, um, I feel like a lot of what he said about, you know, what, what's the famous quote about life is, life is too cruel to even, um, inflict upon an animal or something. It's life is no of... way to treat an animal. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you know, that was definitely sort of where my head was at. And so I've, I think during those years, I fixated on maybe that aspect of it. And then when I came out of the suicide attempt and I found new meaning in life, um, mostly through music, you know, I had been learning to play guitar and suddenly I was writing songs and suddenly I was doing, you know, shows, my first concerts. And I was um, making an album at 17 and then devoting my life shortly thereafter to music for, for the rest of my life. And, and, um, I did give up, I, I know the, I, I'm using your question as a, as an opportunity to springboard into my life story a little bit, but I did end up at Sarah Lawrence college briefly on a full scholarship for creative writing because that was my other passion. And, um, one of the reasons that I gave myself permission or one of the pieces of evidence that I used in that internal struggle, at least uh, to drop out of school and give up that full scholarship was the idea that Vonnegut didn't publish a novel till he was in his thirties, 30 maybe, but you know, it was, he was a late bloomer. I could theoretically drop out of this college and not worry about my writing fiction for the moment, go off and do music and then come to fiction at a later date. I mean, here I am now 50 and I'm still hoping that that um, axiom might apply because I, I really do love writing and I hope that there's a longer work of fiction in me somewhere down the road. But my life definitely did get um, saved by, but then uh, caught up in music as a, as an art form and, and lifestyle. Yeah. The, um, I, I like that you mentioned all of that. I mean, Bowie and, um, and Isabel are, are very, um, 
very lyrical about some of life's challenges. I remember being at an Isbell concert and he played the song Elephant off of uh, Southeastern. And I remember thinking, wow, it's that was almost like the musical version of the movie uh requiem for a dream amazing film Mm -hmm. everybody thinks it's amazing no one wants to see the movie a second time because it's so incredibly (laughs) raw yeah so rat i think it's now time to transition into my personal favorite segment my mom said it's her favorite segment it's the speed round and this round will consist of 10 rapid fire questions we will alternate between vonica questions and general questions just say the first thing that comes into your mind rhett miller are you ready for the speed round no but i'll do it anyway (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> okay, all right. So it goes. All right. First question. Let's get started. If you had to rename one of your existing children after a Vonnegut character, what would you name them? <laughs> she would kill me, but uh, I would rename my 15 year old daughter Montana. Your favorite movie? Oh, God. Step Brothers. Excellent. Sorry. That's a great movie. I, I I was hoping you'd say Days to Confuse because you look a little bit like uh, Jason London from uh, from and you're from Austin too. That, that made me think of that. Great movie. First Vonnegut quote that comes into your mind. Oh God, there's so many. Music is proof of the existence of God. You're stuck on a deserted island with one person for thirty days. Who do you want that one person to be? Oh man, I'm just gonna say my wife erica so that if she listens to this i don't get in too much trouble <laughs> yeah that's a safe answer <laughs> yeah. uh the vonnegut character you'd most like to grab lunch with oh man um i guess i would go with rudy waltz just because i feel so strongly connected to him such a sweet kid yes that is a good answer the musical artist or band you think that you are the most similar to mm. Charles Thompson, a.k.a. Frank Black of the Pixies. Yeah. Oh. We could go into a whole different conversation about <laughs> like <laughs> uh, The Vonnegut character you'd most like to be in a band with. Uh, Montana Wild Hack. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Because people in bands often do wind up dating. And I'm assuming in this scenario, I'm still like 22. She, she also, also in this scenario, she has nothing to do with my daughter. And renaming my daughter Montana had more to do with the cool sounding name of Montana Miller. What a great I, name. I was going to say, should we, should we edit that out and just say Kilgore Trout? Because I'm just, I'm just picturing Kilgore Trout being in a band now. I'm just picturing how bad that Dude, would go. I'm, I'm currently in a band with three different versions of Kilgore Trout. And believe me, it's not all as cracked up to be <laughs> yeah we should have asked you what it's like to be in a band for 36 years or whatever the heck it's 29 been. but yeah it's it's a lot it's a lot <laughs> three three questions left in the speed round the actor you would want to play rhett miller in a rhett miller biopic so funny growing up people always said that rain uh not rain um river phoenix and i were in high school we looked exactly alike and then in my 20s people always said like matt damon um in the era of the talented mr ripley apparently we looked exactly alike now i don't even know who looks like me but if i had to choose somebody cool i'd probably say um oh you know what i just oh I'm, I I almost broke a non-disclosure agreement about a project I've worked I'm working on that I'm not allowed to announce it. <laughs> it has science fiction ties, but let's just say an actor in a popular science fiction franchise that you'll know who I'm talking about once they announce it. Can I leave you with that kind of a uh, yes? Yeah, yes, okay. that that is a okay. 
uh, the one thing you would say to Kurt Vonnegut if he were still alive? I'm absolutely positive you're not going to hell. And then the final question of the speed round. What percentage of the United States population do you think lists you, Rhett Miller, as their celebrity crush? <laughs> yeah, specifically, specifically, my <laughs> wife wants to know how you keep your Paul Rudd youth, youthful looks. <laughs> oh, that's very sweet. Um, I'm going to say it's very small. Can we go sub one? Yes. We, 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 we appreciate your humbleness. <laughs> <laughs> and then now as we begin to, to wrap up, the podcast we've been closing out the podcast this way we think we kind of like it so we think we might stick with it but uh vonnegut taught and gave speeches wherever he could uh rhett miller what is your advice for young people today i have a feeling and this is very much in keeping with so many things that vonnegut wrote throughout his life um starting with player piano i have a feeling that human beings love affair with technology is going to be it's our downfall and i wonder if slash hope that young people today can take what might be like their final opportunity to pull back from the um overlord of technology artificial intelligence smartphone I, I I hope that, and I think that there may be at least a portion of this younger generation that rejects technology, and 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 look, I get why it's good. I get the upside to advances in modern medicine and and the convenience of all this stuff, but the dehumanization um, is not worth it. And I feel like if if a young person has the opportunity to make their life less tethered to technology. I would hope that they would take it. Rhett, can I, uh, can I just keep around uh, the idea dehumanization is not worth it as like a, as like a, as like a motto in life. Can I borrow that from you? <laughs> Absolutely. If, if I get, if I give that full credit, I, I think, uh, you know, like anybody who was born in 1983, I've seen the world change a lot since clear Pepsi. And, yeah. um, yeah, if you ever want to read a, a weird book, Chuck Klosterman's "The '90s" is a is a trip and a half as, as to read now, um, but I, I I do think that's a, that's a really good motto to live by. So we very much appreciate you sharing that very Vonnegutian thought. Yes, and and Rhett, thank you so much for your time and joining us here today on the Vonnecast. And hear more of Rhett. Head over to RhettMiller.com and follow him on Twitter and Instagram at RhettMiller. Thank you again, Rhett, for joining us today. It's been my pleasure, and I can't wait to see you guys in Indianapolis at the Kurt Vonnegut Museum and Library. I think you're doing great work keeping alive the memory of this brilliant, brilliant author. Well, until next time, Vonnegutians, stay tuned to kvml.org and our socials for more exciting episodes coming soon. Thanks for listening to the Vonicast. We hope you enjoyed our conversation with Rhett Miller. To see and hear more from Rhett, head to rhettmiller.com. 
Stay tuned to kvml.org and our socials at Vonnegut Library for all of our events, programs, and new episodes of the Vonnegut coming soon. The Vonnegut is a co-production by the Kurt Vonnegut Museum and Library in WQRT, Indianapolis. Special thanks to our guest, Rhett Miller. The Vonnegut is produced by Fiona Duffy and Drew DeSimone. Audio mix and editing by Nick Corey. Cover art by Rusiak P. Vaitsyan. Vonnegut episodes and all other KVML programming can be found on kvml.org and on our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Vonnegut Library.